everyone. Thanks so much for joining me on the Slice of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Jared Taylor. On today's episode, we're bringing him back, Dr. Matt Lambert, <laughs> the Chief Medical Officer at Curation Health. Dr. Lambert, how are you today? I'm good, Jared. Thank you so much for having me back on the, on the program. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's a good sign when, when people come back. Uh, it, it's, it's a really good sign. And, and we really, I, I feel like our rapport will continue to build. And we had Kevin recently on a, a second time and it was a really good conversation. So these next conversations you and I have and Kevin, and whenever someone's on twice, it's a deeper dive, right? It was a highlight yep. before it's a deeper dive. So today you and I are going to focus in on training clinicians and residents to succeed in value-based care. So I'm excited to, to learn more from you and uh, I'll, I'll let you kind of kick things off. Sounds great. Um, yeah. So, you know, we see um, uh, challenges in, in, in the, in, moving to value-based care, right? And, and, there are, and there are a lot of them. And it's, um, and it's not a subtle shift. Uh, and I think, I think even a lot of the health systems who have even taken a, a big step into it or realize that once they're in there, that they're really going to have to do things a little bit differently. And from the, from the health system side or from uh, a plan side, you know, it really requires a year and a half worth of, uh, of investment. You know, or looking down the road because you're anything that you're not going to see the fruits of your labor, or the fruits of your change until for about a year and a half down. And that's tough for a health system that's you know, historically been fee for service and historically, uh, you know, you know, managing P&L 30 days at a time and not 30 months at a time. Uh, so, so there are a lot of barriers there, but one of the barriers of the actual of, of the, the challenges of, um, of moving to it is at the clinical level is that a lot of times we're asking providers to do something that they weren't trained to do uh, with a tool that wasn't designed for it. Uh, and maybe they're not even, it's not part of their compensation model. So let's, so let's break down the, break down the, the, the pieces of that. Um, most providers are trained in an E&M world, uh, evaluation and management codes, a fee-for-service world. Um, uh, and these came about in 95 and 97. And, 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 and I'm old enough to have that have happened in my training. Uh, uh, and, you know, and I listened to a lot of the doctors lamenting, well, we used to just be able to write whatever we want. Now we have to meet these certain um, uh, uh, markers with our documentation. We have to have a chief complaint. We have to have a, a history of present illness. We have to do a you know seven point seven body part physical exam. We have to do a review of systems. You had to do that in order for it to get reimbursed for that care that you were given. So so we were really um, uh, uh, trained um, to, to to think in that way, and never never underestimate how beholden we are to our, to our training. Right? Uh, you know, physicians are just like uh, you know, just like all of us. Um, tend to be most uh, shaped and formed during our early years, right? Or our formative years. Uh, and things that you learn in residency, you really carry with you. Um, so a lot, of those, a, lot of, a lot of those trends are hard to break. Second piece is electronic health records. We got to electronic health records um, and, um, and they're designed for an E&M output, right? They're designed to, uh, to produce the type of physician documentation that, um, uh, that um, that will uh, that will match to the to the reimbursement model. So so we're we're so that's the part where we're asking them to use a tool that really wasn't designed for that. And it, and it's been really interesting to see a lot of um, and that's one of the things we do at Curation Health is is really kind of help bend that technology and bend the workflow to something that that makes more sense in a value based care world um, than in um, than in a fee for service world. And you know the and, and a lot of that bases on the diagnosis itself. And that in that E and M world that I was talking about. The volume of documentation mattered. The um, uh, or, or making sure you were checking certain boxes. The actual specificity of the diagnosis didn't matter. Value-based care world that is completely flipped. Uh, the 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 specificity of the diagnosis is what uh, is what contributes 
to, to how, uh, how CMS and how the payers uh, assess risk. So that diagnosis has got to be specific, and, and that's new. That wasn't that way before uh, in an E&M world. Uh, and then, and then the other barrier is um, is comp, right? A lot of uh, a, a lot of um, um, groups are still comp uh, on an RVU or fee for service model, where where you uh, your your compensation model is based on volume, and not necessarily outcomes. So so if you're asking someone to do something they weren't trained to do with a tool that wasn't designed to do it, um, and even though they're not going to see an immediate gain from that, you're going to have limited you're going to have limited uptake. So, so we have to change this course and change this process with a lot of folks who are, you know, in, in mid career, uh, uh, and help uh, help bring them along. But I think it makes the most sense, since we're so beholden to our training. Let's start doing this in training, um, and let's start training providers uh, to to um, think a little bit different, focus on a little bit different things, and actually behave and document uh, and, and engage technology in different ways. Um, and so the, a lot of challenges with that are, are where you where you go where you get your training. Uh, you know, academic centers traditionally are um, still um, um, on RVU and fee for service models. The the the, the comp models are a, are a little bit more antiquated, uh, especially if you go to a, a really big academic center, university a, academic center for your training. You're probably not going to get a lot of value based care um, uh, training. Now you'll get you'll get training in, in to be efficient as a clinician. You'll, you'll get trained to be thoughtful of, you know, am I ordering the most appropriate test? Am I, am I, uh, you know, not ordering the most expensive thing all the time? Although at, at a, a lot of academic centers are referral centers, uh, and so and so a lot of times they'll be spending more because they're taking care of the sickest patients. But that you're not going to necessarily get that um, at a um, uh, at a at a true academic center. You probably see more of that when you go to a a, a residency program that's affiliated with you know some of the places that really do a lot of value based care and do it well. So I think of Kaiser, um, you know, out on the West Coast. Anybody who gets training um, at, at Kaiser Permanente just has this baked into uh, some of the processes um, uh, because that's that's how those hospitals operate. Move to the other coast, get into uh, Geisinger in Pennsylvania. Uh, if anyone who's training at Geisinger is going to get up, learn a lot about value-based care and a lot about the ways to 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 adjust their 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 clinical thinking and their documentation around that because that's part of of what Geisinger does and has done for a long time. So, uh, so I would think um, if for a resident now, for let's say I'm graduating medical school now, or I'm looking at, look, looking at where I'd like to match, um, if, if you really wanna be a part of the value-based care movement, then I would consider maybe some of those, uh, I'll call them alternative residency sites or ones that are affiliated with health systems who really, who really do a lot of capitation and value-based care to begin with. I would encourage, um, uh, you know, my colleagues in the academic space, maybe someone who's watching this or even friends at the AAMC, um, just down the street uh, here in DC, uh, about, um, about the um, incorporating the, this as a part of, uh, of models moving forward, especially in the primary care space. Uh, and again, it's uh, the, the essence of the medicine that you're practicing is not gonna be that different, but the way that you document it and the way you present it to, to CMS or to the payers uh, is really going to make a difference to make sure that you um, are, are getting credit for the complexity you're managing. And again, and, and just again, just getting it as a part of training or incorporating that in training is going to make uh, when we're when we're a generation of physicians away from now, um, they'll all be used to to a value-based care world. Long soliloquy on value-based care and training, um, but um, but yeah, I think I, I think we should if we really want to accelerate this, we need to think about the comp models. We need to think about 
um, the technology. We need to think about the um, um, we need to think about the, the the way we're training providers, and that takes us directly to, to the way we train them in general residency. That was excellent. Um, and I was quiet the whole time because I was not going to disrupt that flow. It was perfect. I really like it. Uh, I have one question uh, okay. out of that, though. Do you envision, and, and maybe when do you think that point comes, when certain people, I guess, in medical school, do you think there's going to be in the very near term a generation of clinicians and like residents that only know value-based care? Like, when do you think that point comes? And do you think it will ever come or will we always be like, there'll be a percentage of like kind of going back and forth? I'm curious because I, I think that'd be really interesting to, to find out. We have a generation of physicians right now who have never written a prescription, right? They've only clicked on a prescription. Um, uh, so I, I, was, I was working with a resident uh, uh, um, um, the other day, and the um, and we we're having some challenges with the with the uh, uh, the auto the prescription uh, the automatic piece, and so I pulled out a script pad and handed it to her, and she looked at me like, "What do I do with this?" So uh, so yeah so yeah we'll absolutely have a um, a generation of providers who don't know anything different, um, uh, it, and it's going to be I mean it's it'll probably be it'll be at least a decade I think um, maybe a little bit longer, uh, um, but and and that kind of goes to the whole. Um, um, the, the challenge with the operating model anyway. So Jared, the, we, we see it, it, you can do, you can do 20% of your business as value-based care uh, and still not change anything that you're doing, right? You, you not change your operating model, not change your comp model, not change that. You can have up to 20% of your patients enrolled in a value-based care plan. To, to, for value-based care to make sense, um, um, as you have to have at least two thirds of your patients in there, so so a lot of the market is stuck between this twenty percent and this uh, and this sixty three percent hurdle that you have to get through for it to really make sense. So the ones who are in that far right group have already fully embraced it. They're way ahead and they're pushing the market, and a lot of that is in you know Medicare Advantage and in home primary care, full risk, full capitated. Um, but I think um, I think we'll we'll. When we start getting people entering who are trained in value-based care is when we're really going to see us get over that one-third to, to two-thirds uh, gap where we're kind of where we're kind of stalled out right now. And I don't want to say stalled; that's not the best word, but that's the biggest that's the biggest barrier. You can do 20% of value-based care, not change a thing, but if you're going to embrace it, you need to embrace it at least two-thirds of your contract for it really to be your new operating model. And I think you see that a lot in any any sort of um, uh, change management, right, or change process or market adoption, right? There's that that first 10% is pretty slow. Um, uh, uh, and then the, the, the adoption curve really gets steep until you get up to about 90%. So I think, I think it'll follow that same sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll completely have a generation of physicians in 10 or 15 years that only know, only know value-based care. Well, that'll, that'll be really interesting. And, and I think that's when you'll start to see, you'll, you'll start to see, obviously, we've already been starting to see some positive changes now yep. uh, as, as value-based care becomes more, uh, more of a focus, right? But I think that's when you'll really start to notice that shift when that's all that they've, that's, that's all that they know, right? Um, and, yep. and hopefully we, as a result, we start to see those healthcare costs because you and I talked about this before the podcast. It is insane to me that if US, if you took the US healthcare portion of GDP and you made that its own country, that is the fourth largest GDP in the world. That is insane. Um, absolutely crazy. So my mind was blown when I heard that stat. So uh, I think value-based care helps us 
significantly reduce that, uh, you know, whatever it is, $3.8 trillion a year spend, which is insane. Yeah, it, it's completely um, unsustainable, right? And, and I think that's the, um, I mean, that's the whole crux of this, right? Uh, and value-based care, I'm sure, you know, the, the, the perfect model doesn't exist, right? Uh, and it, it has its, uh, it has its, you know, challenges as well. And I'm sure there will be some unintended consequences to, for, for this big of a market shift, right? You're changing the economy of the fourth largest country in the world, right? Um, but, uh, but it's, we've, we've got we've to find a way for a more sustainable path. And it's just, otherwise, it's just going to pull us down in other areas, so many other areas of our, of, our, of our society and other things that we could be investing in. And that really opens up, you know, SDOH too, right? If, there's, if there are other funds available, um, you know, other than, uh, other than managing, you know, healthcare in its current state, then that would free up some other investment that we could, you know, that would improve people's health otherwise in the communities as well. I would, you know, I'd love to see um, us reinvesting in a lot of the communities in this country, uh, not just with the infrastructure, but in, in every way. And, and behavioral health too. I'd love to see more investment in behavioral health. Absolutely. Well, yep. Dr. Lambert, it's always a pleasure. This won't be the last time you're on. So look forward to, to doing some more stuff. You and I talked about maybe even We'll, we'll do a little teaser here, but maybe even a panel in the near future, which will be really exciting with uh, some of the other uh, organizations that are really pushing forward value-based care, but always a pleasure chatting with you and, and Kevin and the rest of the Curation Health team and uh, look forward to having you on again real soon. Thank you so much for having me and I'm already looking forward to the next time. Thank you to everyone that listened to this week's episode of the Slice of Healthcare podcast. If you'd like to check out more of our podcasts, we're available on all the major podcast channels. And you can check us out on our website, www.sliceofhealthcare.com. And that'll have all of our past guests on there. Uh, you can see our sponsors and you can learn more about actually becoming a guest. Thanks and look forward to another episode next week.